Hi, I'm Lan Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Simon Ellis. Originally from New Zealand, Simon is a dancer, choreographer, and writer and academic based in London, uh, and a senior research fellow at the Centre for Dance Research at Coventry University. Simon has a particular interest in the limits and possibilities of collaboration in choreographic processes, and he is currently doing research on the ways our screen culture is changing dance practices. He also is a co-editor of the International Journal of Screen Dance, which you can find online at screendancejournal.org. You can read Simon's own website at skellis.info, and you can follow him on Twitter at Simon K. Ellis. I would also highly recommend checking out his uh, videos on Vimeo at vimeo.com slash skellis. Simon is the author of the LeanPub book, Some Things About Dance. It's an intriguing book comprised of self-contained chapters or things that cover a range of topics of interest to people who care about dance as an art form, and at the same time of interest to people curious about dance and how it can challenge and inspire. In this interview, we're going to talk about Simon's background and career, his professional interests, and he'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published writer. So thank you, Simon, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Such a pleasure, Lynn. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you became involved in dance. So I'm I'm actually a New Zealander, and uh, I don't know how much you know about New Zealand other than Lord of the Rings, but uh, the, the kind of culture, I think, for men is heavily based around rugby and kind of highly physical sports, really. And and so I was, I got uh, I got interested. I was playing a lot of rugby, playing a lot of sport, and I got interested in dancing because I saw a film. This was back in 1984, maybe 83, and saw a film that made me think I might quite like to try that. It was a film called White Nights, a trashy, terrible, terrible film. Um, and so I ended up doing a – I went to a, a university in the south of New Zealand called Otago University where they, as part of – it was a physical education course, and as part of that degree, uh, they made us do modern dance uh, in the first year. And so that was a way for me – I felt I kind of, I might say, an acceptable or comfortable way for me as a you know, young, you know, older teenager finding a, finding a way into dance. And so that's how I that's how I – made that um, shift, you might say, from, from thinking about being a physical or an athlete to, to a dancer. And what did you study in university? So I studied, a, it was a degree in physical education, uh, particularly in an area uh, called kinesiology, which is, in fact, my, my bachelor's degree and my master's degree in physical education were in looking at Newtonian mechanics, so mostly kind of physics-based stuff. Um, but a curious thing happened, I... Um, while I was doing my master's, I went to, uh, I went to, I visited Melbourne and I walked into a dance school, a conservatoire, and they were having auditions there and I thought, why don't I have a go? And so I ended up auditioning kind of on the spur of the moment and, and changed careers from being effectively a, a scientist to uh, someone studying dance and the practices of dance. And, uh, skipping ahead a little bit, um, when we when we were talking before this interview, you, uh, you mentioned that you have a PhD, which was something I didn't discover in my uh, research. Uh, what was your PhD on? So I did my PhD at the uh, University of Melbourne, and it's in dance. So I have it's uh, what's called a, a degree or a PhD through practice. So you might say half of the uh, half of the degree was looking at practices. In my case, practices of improvisation, and the other half was a, a slightly more conventional. Um, uh, written output or written thesis, but I, my actual my PhD was actually presented. You sort of date it certainly, but it was presented as a DVD-ROM, so the thing is a single disc. And, yeah. And so, when you um, audition for a conservatoire and you are accepted, what changes in your life? I mean, is it is it nine to five? Is it seven days a week? Do you prepare? Are you constantly training? I'm, I'm just curious about getting to know the life of a, a dancer. Yeah, it's really uh, it's intensely uh, demanding, physically demanding. So it really is nine to five in the studio. There'll be some. We did a little bit of kind of theory subjects, but mostly we were working on the in the studio. And, and certainly in terms of change, you know, I, I, I stripped a lot of weight in that first year. That's for sure. You know, it wasn't that I was unfit, but boy, it was um, it was demanding. And so it's a, it's a sort of a, 
it's like an overdose, uh, a three-year overdose of sort of systems of training and thinking about the way we inhabit and experience our bodies in dancing. And um, when you have, so do you have different teachers that teach you different styles? Do you spend a few months learning one type of dance, focusing in, or do you or do you constantly have a number of things that you're doing at the same time? Yeah. Yeah, they have, you know, I guess it would depend on the conservatoire, but you probably, in most, you know, kind of Western countries, there would be a focus on, on ballet and contemporary dance, which is what it was like for us. And then you would do sort of allied subjects. So we did six months of flamenco and I did six months of tap dance and some classical Indian dance. And then we're doing partnering work. And then we're also learning about choreography, so about making. And that's quite a, that's quite an important thing in dance that, unlike studying painting or any any subject where you are working with materials uh, in dance, you're both uh, both the material you like and also the person often who's making those materials. So it's, it's a sort of, you sort of develop a strange relationship with your body. Yeah, I've got some questions I'd like to ask you about choreography, but before um, moving on, I guess I'd like to ask, imagine, I mean, I'm, I'm sure this happens to you all the time, but imagine you were speaking to someone who didn't know anything about contemporary dance uh, who perhaps maybe had an image of people dressed in black on a stage, you know, moving about gracefully. Uh, how would you characterize the work? Um, how would you characterize modern dance to someone who didn't know about it? That's a really, it's a, always, it's it's a, never a less challenging, or it hasn't become a less challenging question as I've got uh, more experienced. I think the way I would answer it now is that uh, like any um, discipline or any art form as well that there are, there are people interested in uh, in expanding or pushing what it might be and so I think of contemporary dance uh, as as being a way of testing the limits of our imaginations as dance people uh, testing the imaginations or testing the limits of the imaginations of audiences um, and so sometimes we're dealing Sometimes we're dealing with ideas very directly, and it might be, and you might sort of call that sort of slightly more conceptual dance. And other times it's just really about the kind of physicality of the body or a slightly more aesthetic pursuit. And so, to, to, and, and that's a slightly woolly answer, and it's tricky because contemporary dance itself is an incredibly broad area. So I can't, it's really hard to, um, to, to sum it up in a very uh, precise way. Uh, one question I have related to that is um, my experience with um modern dance is always i'm always driven to interpret i want to interpret what i'm seeing and i want to even silently in my own mind i want to put into words what i'm seeing uh, and what i'm experiencing as though i'm writing an essay about you know what what does this mean i'm doing some hermeneutics is that something that you're preoccupied with yourself when you're choreographing a, a, a work or is it is it sometimes yes sometimes no mm. so again it's a really good question i i i think it you know and i guess different different art forms certainly have a different relationship to the way in which meaning or the potential for meaning is conveyed and so i would i would suggest that in in a lot of contemporary dance the comparison i would make is more like a music video, a kind of a traditional music video, where often they're quite jumbled or they're quite abstract. And we don't tend to, uh, ah, some do, but we don't tend to look at um, music videos as a thing of um, something to understand. Certainly there are, there are exceptions to that. And so it's much more about the way in which the images play across our eyes, the way in which the sound is working for us, that, that it, it creates a kind of an overall sense of something. And, and some of that work might be interpretive, you know, that you're that you're interpreting things. But I, I tend to think about much more about um, like a wash, uh, like something where I'm starting to get a feeling for what's going on. Mm. It's a curious thing about um, art and interpretation that people who, for example, might be confronted with a an equation from physics, from theoretical physics, will not be offended by it. But when it comes to things like modern dance, when it comes to things like abstract art, like a Rothko painting or something like that, you know, people are often offended 
or, or hurt. It's strange that they're they're kind of hurt or angered, and this can be expressed in various ways, including you know dismissal and things like that. Uh, if you were speaking to someone like that, whose just natural natural reaction were to be kind of un, unhappy in some way with being presented with modern dance and say, well, why don't you just do ballet? Why don't you just do flamenco? Why don't you just do something normal? What would you, what would you say to them about what, what you're up to? Well, there are one thing that comes to mind is that a lot of these things are about what we're used to looking at. Um, and so if I take the example of the recent film, three billboards, um, a film that Francis McDormand is the lead actor in, and there's been a, I mean, there's been criticism of, criticism of it in different ways. But one of its one of the criticisms, spoiler, is that um, is that the the ending is incredibly ambiguous. That it doesn't it doesn't prescribe what it is that we should think or what it is that we should know has happened to these characters. And there's something to me about watching that film which which reminds me of the value and the importance of things in a world which is incredibly instrumental, increasingly instrumentalized, that when we do this, this happens. When we do this, we get this from it. And so there's something about something about situations where we're confronted with ambiguity or openness, which I think are incredibly vital. They're, they're, they're even more so, and I think particularly even more so as we're um, living in a world that's, um, you know, a so-called digital world, but also in the way in which AI or the way in which um, software and the way in which uh, programmers are shifting the way in which you're, or, um, or let's say constraining the way in which, our lives are experienced. So there's something for me about the value there that's really important. This, this might I didn't really, I didn't, sorry, I didn't really answer your question about being, getting people getting frustrated, but I, I can have a go at that if you'd like. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this, this comes back to you. You made the comparison with ballet, and, and of course ballet's got a rich and long history, and it's, there's something about... Uh, we might say um, the status quo or hegemonic things, the things that we're used to seeing in the way in which they are in our culture that we don't seem to question them in the same way. And again, one of the things I think about contemporary dance, and it is one of the things that frustrates people, there's no doubt about it, is that it's it's kind of, it's, it's, it's trying to challenge um, and trying to play with the way in which we perceive and inhabit the world. So there's a, there's a kind of, a, there's a, there's a, it's almost, there's a, there's a challenge implicit uh, in its nature, and, and that of course is going to, you know, it's going to deter people. It's going to frustrate people. It's also going to enliven and enrich people's lives. So, yeah. It's it's curious. Um, it reminds me of uh, a con- this reminds me of a conversation I had with someone once about um, poetry. Is an old friend of mine who had the, um, I guess probably sort of common understanding of what you do when you encounter a poem, which is you try to discover the meaning in the poem. And when I explained to him that when you interpret a poem, you're bringing that interpretation to the poem. Because uh, he was asking, how can, how can you, I was studying English, and he's like, how can, what is there to do? There's one, there's one meaning of the poem, it's what the author intended, and that's that. Well, how can two people write different essays about the same poem and both be right? Uh, and I, I sort of talked about it a little bit, about how it's what you bring to the piece, yourself and he said so it's made up it's just made up and i said well and he happened to have built his own house or and i said well did you did you build your own house and he said yes and i said so is it just made up and i was wondering if there's something specific to dance because i mean you were talking about it a little bit but you know at, at least people are generally familiar from grade 10 english with poems and words present them with something static that they can look at and and perhaps recall or you know they can look up the meaning of a word but a, a gesture or a movement in in dance they can't see they can't they can't look it up there's no reference yeah it's really um it's a really uh, it's a 
complex situation in a way because we, I think partly because we are increasingly living, you might say, disembodied lives. So our relationship with our bodies is, um, in, in, in some circumstances, is kind of traumatic. It's something that we train. It's something we try and organize. It's something that we get out of bed. It's a, it's a, it's a, the body is something that we're just constantly doing something to or avoiding happening, having something happen to it. And so there's something for me there which is, that that change in time means that when we're looking at, at in this case people dancing, that that our there's a there's a kind of a degree of abstraction or a degree of um, uncertainty about the way in which uh, the way in which something or things might come into meaning. Oh, that's slightly tricky language. I appreciate that. But and what I mean by that is that. Um, rather, that, unlike a word, even though it's arranged in a poem, words have specific meanings, although, in fact, there's also incredible ambiguity in meanings with words, which, of course, is partly what poetry tries to do. Um, and the thing about dance, I guess, is that I'm not sure if it's unique to dance, but certainly this idea that me as a choreographer, that it's not that I am trying to tell you something. It would probably be far more efficient and productive for me just to tell you those things in words. But I think it's placing some things in the space or on the table that make something possible for you. And that's a pretty important idea because it means that that you sitting next to someone else who has a whole different set of experiences is going to be noticing things differently. And that would be Something I advise, you know, certainly as people starting or when they're looking at dancing or looking at art in general is what is it that you're noticing? What is it that you're noticing about the things you're seeing, the things you're hearing, but also in your own in your own kind of mind? What it is that you're noticing? So it's much less about interpreting and more about noticing. Um, moving from perhaps the sort of abstract to the concrete, um, <laughs> what was your first public performance like what was the experience like being I, I just imagine under the lights on a stage probably with other people uh what's what's that type of performance like you mean as a dancer right not as a choreographer yeah as a dancer i'll ask you a question about choreography later. <laughs> it's quite a while ago now it's it's a, it's a, I, I think, and I think maybe this has persisted, there's something kind of altered about it, a little bit like an, like you're aware of yourself in a very different way, uh, as if there's a version of you looking at yourself on the stage going, what, what the hell am I doing here? And, and part of the process of learning to perform is getting used to that feeling of, of being watched. And one of the things I mentioned in this, in, in this book I've written by Lean Pub is this idea of inviting being seen. And that takes a long time to get used to the idea that, that you're welcoming being watched as opposed to what if I make a mistake? What if I do all the kinds of things that tend to go wrong in a cluttered mind when you first start dancing or performing? Is it competitive? Um, well, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is that one of the things that drew drew me to it was was I had this idea that it wasn't competitive. I was playing a lot of competitive sports, and I got tired of that competitiveness. So I thought, this surely, surely, dancing is not competitive. But I guess, like any any um, any situation where the opportunities are far fewer than the number of people wanting to pursue those opportunities, there's going to be competition. Um, doesn't get, I haven't had too many nasty experiences, though. I'm, I'm just curious. My, my last interview uh, for this podcast was with someone who uh, had been pursuing a potential career as a professional uh, ice hockey player. Um, mm. And uh, like other people I've known, he at a certain point had to just decide you know, it's, it's not going to happen, but it's never easy to confront that. Um, is there a similar thing in, in when it comes to becoming a professional dancer? Does, does everybody have to sort of face a moment where they, or those, those who don't make it? I mean, I guess yeah, I'm sure. kind of answering my own question, but is it, is it similar to that experience? Well, I think the thing to say here is that if you're a man dancing, certainly in Western contemporary dance or Western ballet, then then your chances of, of becoming a professional are very high compared to the number of women. That's, that's, that's just simply about how many young women want to be dancers. 
And so I think there's, uh, like any situation, if you care about something, you're committed to something, and the confrontation with the possibility that you might not be as good as you think you are, and that maybe you're not good enough to, to make a career of it, that's always going to be a confronting situation. I don't think that's about competitiveness in the sense of, you know, person against person, but it is about um, uh, what's, what's uh, the kind of things that are available to people, the opportunities that are available to people. You mentioned, um, I think, programming and technology, and I, I probably bungled my representation of your research in the introduction. Um, but um, uh, you, you do, you, you are working on on screen culture in relation to dance, and I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, so I'm really. What's uh, interesting about dance is that, as I'm alluding to, is that it's for the most part it happens. You might say in the flesh. It involves people in the same room, either watching or doing. Um, and uh, something has gone on in dance, and you could probably trace it to the uh, the beginning of YouTube. What was it in two thousand and five, when when the um, amount, the quantity of dance uh, online just exploded. So there's a, a, a strange scenario, right? and you might call it for dance anyway, the elephant in the room, whereby most of the way in which people consume dance is via screens. So you might even say at undergraduate level, most of the dance that people are looking at is on screens. Even those, even these are works that weren't necessarily made for screen. They might be recordings of stage performances. Um, and that's a curious and quite a, you might say, a provocative shift for an art form that is inhabited or that inhabits our bodies and is about the, uh, the sort of possibilities of the human body and so part of my research at the moment is is looking into that shift that seismic shift that's happening and what are the implications for dance that now people are consuming and looking at and producing it through screens and what does that say about our culture and how has it changed the way in which we understand dance and think about dance um shifting the topic of conversation a little bit i wanted to talk to you about money um and, uh, <laughs> Finally, <laughs> um, what's the funding situation like for modern dance in the UK? And I, I guess I'd like to ask, you know, specifically, if if say you've come up with a, an idea, or and I'm not even really sure what to call it for a performance. Do you call it a work? Do you call it a choreograph? Choreography, all of those three is got a work, a performance, a choreography, all of them. Okay, if you, if you if you've come up with an idea for a work. It's going to cost money to to put it on, um, in, including you know perhaps paying yourself, paying other performers, paying for costumes, things like that. What do you do to get that funding? Okay, so the, the question is: What does one? Yeah, you know, what, does, what, do, what do most people do, and, yes. and what do I do? And, and they're slightly different from the, uh, what I do is slightly different from the norm. But certainly, the the usual way, and it's highly competitive. If you talk about competition, highly competitive, and also particularly in Britain, with you know, there's been quite long term austerity here, and austerity is a you know an ideological term for squeezing money out of places that that the current government don't care about, and the arts generally are certainly uh, one of those areas. So that means that more and more people are uh, competing for fewer and fewer financial resources. But the process is really, you know, it's mostly public funding. Uh, here it's called Arts Council England, England that is in the UK. And um, you, you propose an idea and you have to get support on board from presenters or venues that are, are willing to show the work and you – uh, you pitch for a certain amount of money, and that can be a small amount of money, you know, up to £10,000, or it can be a lot of money if you've got something, you know, a larger vision, you might say, with more dates or more places to tour it. And does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, uh, I've, got, I've got a question I'd like to ask you about that in a little bit um, with respect to the kind of the way funding can get very personal um, but before then, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Brexit. I've been doing this on, on this podcast whenever I interview someone from the UK. I lived there for a few years myself, so it's, I mean, perhaps particular. I get to say it's particularly interesting to me. Um, specifically, I'd like to ask you how the whole Brexit thing has been affecting the arts community in your, in your experience. Are people concerned about changes to funding, Are, about it getting worse? Are people concerned about things like traveling and putting on performances in other countries? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, for one thing, funding, you know, the European Union funds the arts. Um, and so access to that funding will disappear. And I think that will probably hurt organizations in the UK more than individual people. But that, that sort of you might sort of, dare I say, it trick, would trickle down that kind of funding. Please, I can't believe I just said that. And, and so that's going to change for sure. I think the bureaucracy involved in traveling uh, from the UK to the continent and back will, and the kind of uh, the sort of bureaucratic demands of setting up um, dates or tour venues or that kind of thing, I'd, I'd imagine that would change and increase, that we'll get more, um, yeah, more bureaucratic. And, and, of course, that doesn't, for most artists, uh, most independent artists, they don't have they don't have large organizations behind them doing that kind of work. So that just basically increases the kind of little work, the administrative work, the, the work that's not really the job you're supposed to be doing. That increases that kind of um, uh, that labor. But, of course, a lot of this is hypothetical. We don't really know what's going to happen. What we're, what's happening in, uh, at the moment here in, in the UK is we're really just watching a car crash happen within the Tory government, within the Conservative government, with the infighting which caused the vote, the referendum in the first place is really coming home to roost for them at the moment. And it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty depressing, uh, given my politics, to, to watch that and to, to recognise that the country or the, has been put through this because of those internal politics. And, but I've probably strayed off your question there. No, no, I'm, I'm, I was curious to hear your, your, your position on things. Um, uh, is there a culture of private funding for uh dance performances. I, I had a friend who was a budding playwright in London uh, in the early 2000s, and I was very surprised about her experience, which she took for granted. But what she did was she went, and perhaps it was because she failed to get public funding, I don't know, but what she did, what she, she effectively went around and found investors, uh, people who would invest in the production of her play as a money-making venture. Yeah, there's... It- I mean, the idea of philanthropy generally is not it's, – it's not really big in the UK like this, for example, in the United States. It's, it's a really curious thing. They're trying to introduce it. It's a, it's a strange way to, to try and introduce culture like that. You know, let's start being – let's get these, um, these people who are making a lot of money to corporations to, to be, uh, have philanthropic uh, respects. But it's – I, I don't know I, – I don't know of many dancers who – uh, certainly in contemporary dance who uh, have that kind of support or private support. And I, I think it's important to say here that the economics of, of the kind of dancing I do is about loss or reducing the amount of money you're going to lose. Uh, we're not talking about West End shows which are designed or effectively a commercial which are designed to make a profit and the risk is, is associated with the, you know, the greater risk is associated with the greater reward or potential reward. But in the kind of dancing I do, these are small audiences, you know, 50 people, maybe 100, maybe 200 if it's a larger venue. And, and so really they're, they're, they are projects that are, um, that are in some way uh, supported by organizations and people. There's a um, uh, movement called Me Too that you've probably heard of um, that's affected uh, various industries, uh, including um, – acting famously, um, mm. film acting in Hollywood. Um, has there been anything happening on that front in the dance world in the UK? Uh, I'll talk about Europe generally, uh, but I think perhaps perhaps a way to preface uh, a response is that this is an industry uh, that is overwhelmingly, uh, in terms of percentages, is, 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 is about women. Um, most, most people who start dancing and continue dancing are women. Uh, as, a, as a man in the dance world, you're certainly uh, you're, you're in the minority in terms of numbers. But there's also a curious thing, which is that, you're, that men tend to hold positions of power and by positions of power, I mean they tend to be choreographers or choreographers of larger-scale organizations tend to be men. So there's a disproportionate number of men in, in those positions, uh, given, the, um, given the overall numbers of people involved. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a curious situation. It's curious because it means that 
the way in which power works and the way in which we work and use power uh, means that there are going to be people on the receiving end of it. And if the, if the if it holds that most of the people in power are men, then most of the people on the receiving end of that power are women. So, yes, there's a very um, uh, a very close, uh, a very tight relationship to the concerns of the Me Too movement uh, that's going on generally. And certainly, I know in in Belgium, there's a um, uh, uh, a let's say a a calling to task of a, a, a number of um, uh, choreographers over uh, potential kinds of um, situations where they've been, um, uh, let's say, abuses of power. I, don't, I, don't, I couldn't be any more specific than that, and it would be wrong to be any more specific than that. But, yes, it's going on, and I think it's going on in a very important and vital way in, in contemporary dance. One of the things I was struck by uh, reading um, both, you know, some of your work online and um, your book is the way you write about power and it got me thinking about something I had never thought about before, which is the very precise kind of commands one must give as a choreographer. You know, it's, it's, it's different than a drill sergeant off. I mean, you know, often it can be like you over there in the corner, you know, do this with your hand now. No, no, I meant, I meant, I meant this, not that. No, wait, now I've changed my mind. What's, how do you, how do you manage that dynamic with someone on the receiving end? Or is it just very like, once you get to a professional level, you're sort of just familiar with the, the interaction and it's not personal. Uh, well, it's intensely personal. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, certainly I can speak from the perspective of a dancer as a choreographer, but as a dancer, it's, um, the instructions you're given are both precise and highly ambiguous. Uh, sometimes, sometimes it is about precision that you need to have your left, this left side of your pelvis there and your elbow there and that kind of, uh, you're a bit late there and you need to be quick, you know, those kinds of instructions. But then there's also instructions which are deliberately ambiguous where they're, they're tr there's a, a sense of trying to elicit something. And this is an important thing to remember that choreography, I guess there's probably the, the, general perception that choreography is done by a choreographer who makes up a whole lot of movements and then passes those movements on, hands them on to dancers to learn. But certainly in, I would say, I mean, certainly in contemporary dance, but probably even in ballet these days as well, most processes are devising processes. So the choreographer is working with the dancers uh, to devise materials together. So a lot of the, a lot of the ideas and the energy and the, and the actual physical actions are coming from the dancers themselves. So there's a, it's, it's not as clear cut as a, the, the sort of, you might say the power is not flowing in one direction, at least in that respect. I wanted to ask you about your work as a choreographer. Um, what's, what's your process for, and you, and you just touched on it a little bit. I mean, do you, do you sketch things out beforehand? Do you, do you, do you write, in words, what you want to convey in dance through your work, or is it you know you sort of have a sort some a set of ideas and then you you've got people or yourself on stage at practicing and you it's sort of like modeling clay. <laughs> I mean, it's highly variable. It really does change a lot. But let's just use uh, just as a just to give you an idea of one end of the continuum. Uh, it would be akin to a computer programmer starting writing code without knowing what the nature of the application it is that she or he is writing. So that is that I would start with, let's say, particular practices. And, you know, I'll use the example of, of, of writing code. Start with particular practices. Those practices might be, um, they might be improvisations, they might be just little things, right? And then from that, things emerge. We start with, with people who are in the studio, we might go, oh, I really got interested in this. What if we do this to that? What if we pursue that? What if we cut and paste there? What if we, those kinds of what if questions happen? So it's much more a kind of an emerging process. And But certainly the other end of the continuum is that I have, you know, I might do a whole lot of research with a whole series of images and ideas, and then I would bring those into the studio. But of course, as I, as I was hinting at before, when you meet people in any space, one has changed, you know, people are ch people change you. And so bringing those ideas into contact with people means there's a beautiful process of adapting and, and working on your feet quickly to think through how it is best to, uh, to, to deal with that relationship with those people. One of the things you write about 
um, with respect to choreography is that there's the kind of choreography that happens on stage that's managed by perhaps a single person, but there's other types of choreography that happen in, in all of our lives where we have conventions that we follow, things we don't even think about, about certain types of behavior. Um, one can even see, for example, um, funding schemes for the arts as, as, as a form of nationalism and choreography in itself. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to ask you a question about that. Is there something about modern dance that is, is, I guess, going back to what I was talking about, about it being unsettling to some people, do you think it's partly that it represents this this sort of subconscious uh, denial of how choreography how choreographed our own lives are that we, and, but we don't, we don't think about it. Well, I really, it's a really fascinating question. I, I think I wrote that. Uh, one of the things I, in the book that I mentioned is that Deborah Hay, an American choreographer says that humans, we are choreographed up the wazoo is the way she puts it. And, and you know, she's really meaning that our lives are so tightly choreographed the way in which we uh, posture, the way in which we stand, the way in which we arrange, we arrange ourselves in a lift or on an, ele you know, an elevator. Um, and so I think there's something that by putting it in the book, by mentioning it in the book, I think this is also a problem in dance. That is that where it's, it's pretty addictive to be controlling people, to be having people um, express it's as addictive as a choreographer. That is it's addictive to have people express your ideas. And that's a slightly, I don't think that's what really happens, but it's the idea that we have these people who are our, um, uh, they're doing what we're telling them to do in order to express express something of ours, and and so there's a kind of a choreography of of people, a choreography of um, of of minds that is I, I find problematic, but it's certainly very present in the art form as well. And, and so some of the things I've been exploring as a choreographer is how is it that I might uh, crack open that relationship between me and the dancer or the dancers I'm working with? What kinds of conditions might I make where their responsibilities are increased? Um, but I think, uh, you know, I think that's sort of getting at what you're saying, but in the world in general, I think if we can find ways to sensitize ourselves to uh, let's say the way in which our lives are choreographed, I think there's something really useful in, in, you know, heightening our awareness of that. And that's partly why it's one of the themes, I guess, of the book is that it, you know, I think even not just, not just for dancers or people involved in dance is, is kind of sort of finding ways to think or, or taking time to stop and think a little bit about how it is that we are constrained or how it is that we are choreographed or, yeah. Uh, my next question is a little bit selfish. It's something. These are that, challenging. These are challenging questions. Well, you're, you're answering them uh, with the phone, <laughs> so thank you very much for being game. Um, my next question is: is I, I was saying a little bit selfish. It's something I've always been curious about uh, when it comes to uh, contemporary dance, and it's going to take me a little while to explain. Um, in one of your performances called Sprawl, uh, you performed with uh, Sean McLeod. And there's a point at which you and Sean have a circular piece of black cloth that's around your heads. And so you, for the people listening, you can imagine them with this shared piece of circular cloth around their heads, sort of straining in opposite directions. And they're not holding it up. They're holding it up with their, the cloth up with their heads. And it's look, linking you and trapping you together. And there's a certain moment where Sean's end of the cloth is strained over his eyes. And at the same time, the other end is over your mouth. Um, and I found it to be a sort of beautiful and ominous and striking moment. Um, but it, it also struck me at first as very metaphorically straightforward. And you, you pulled it off, but I want to ask how does someone, because it's so visual and because there often is a meaning behind what's being done, how do you avoid crossing the line into cliche? Uh, I've, 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 I've experienced much more of, of that than I have of what I've, what I've experienced, what I experienced watching your, your work in preparation for this interview. How do you, how do you do it? How do you know um, when you've gone as it were kind of too far or not far enough? 
well, also one person's cliche is another person's kind of perfect moment there. So there's something about taste, um, you know, and what we're used to seeing. Uh, and certainly Sean McLeod is a New Zealander based in Australia. He and I have been doing this a long time. So it's also about our taste and the kinds of ways in which we've developed taste over time and, and our, you might say, the way in which we've tried to be sensitive to um, placing something in the room but not, uh, not uh, you might say, forcing people's eyes on what it is that we're doing. So there's a, there's a, there's a playfulness there between an offer but also it's it's an offer which is saying, maybe you could look at this, maybe not. You know, so it's there's a, something quite gentle about it. Um, and I think that's very different from the way in which, let's say, we are we tend to be manipulated emotionally in, in a lot of kind of mainstream Hollywood films. Well, you know, their reason for being is to man, manipulate us emotionally in the way the music is designed, is designed to do that, for example. And so we're dealing much more, in this case, uh, in the case of the work Spool with Sean, is is much more a kind of a, yeah, it's a little bit like it's a bit more insidious, like gently insidious, if one could say that. It's, it's here it is on the table for you, you know, make it, make of it what you will. Uh, yeah, yeah, thanks. yeah. It could be a cliche. It could be a cliche for sure too. That well, way no, you describe it. <laughs> no, no. Thanks for that answer. No, I mean what you, what you said. Uh, you know, one person's cliche is someone else's beautiful moment. And the the funny thing is, is that that I had. Not that I thought it was a cliche, but it did strike that thought into me that it was. It seemed so straightforward to me, and then there I was, reading your book, and I came across the uh, thing or chapter about constraint, and the image that was drawn has someone with a circular constraint around them, and and but what you say about constraint is that constraint is is good. It's the source of creativity. And it totally shifted what I'd been thinking about that image of you and and Sean with the elastic with, with, the, the, with the elastic, yeah, one yeah covering yeah. the eyes and covering the mouth at the same time. Like you know, one could view that as you, each one of you imposing a constraint on the other, giving them giving them an opportunity for creativity because they're not sub, usually subject to that constraint. Yeah, and the situation is made more complex because, because, because of course, we were we, we were improvising, um, so we didn't know necessarily that that was going to happen at that time. So you could say, well, we avoided the cliche um, by uh, by not choreographing it, and yet still the possibility is that it occurs. So there's that's something about sensitivity to time, sensitivity to the way things might seem and the way in which they might look. And the other thing that's going on in that particular work at that time is ACDC, the Australian band, is playing back in black, you know. And so there's something that's sort of undermining the – it's a little bit like saying, we understand this is a bit silly because then you, what you don't see is the lyrics of the song are being played on a, on a little screen next to us. And so it's a sort of – there's a, some kind of absurdity, and that, that playfulness gives us license, yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit. I know, I know, every every work is unique, but one thing people listening I might not know is that often uh, this the the dance uh, is not that Simon does is not accompanied by music, or and 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 might not be accompanied by music at all. But but sometimes music comes in and out of the performance. I I I was certain it was Highway to Hell. Um, you know what? I'm so you're so you're so right. I got it wrong. It's highway to hell. Oh, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but but it was but it was this. I just want to say that the striking thing about the creativity involved in this this type of work is there are two men, and I didn't know that you were improvising, but doing this sort of beautiful routine, and then you walk over. There's a, there's a ringing, and you walk over to an iPad that's on the stage with you, and and then I think you click it, and then all of a sudden, Highway to Hell by ACDC starts playing. Uh, I don't know if I can be more specific than this, but you know, what, what is your relationship to music? I mean, you, you do use pop music in your, in your performances. Sure. Yeah. It's just, um, it's a little bit like any kind of, uh, element or any kind of, you might say like a brush stroke, uh, 
uh, what if I add a little bit of this? Uh, and, you know, and I've used music and choreographers tend to use music in, in wide and varied ways, sometimes choreographing very directly. For example, I made a work years ago to um, Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun, and every moment was highly choreographed. So, you know, there are, and, and then also slightly more, I've worked with uh, com- composers who are making music or making sound very specifically for work. So I don't have a particular relationship, but I, recognize and I certainly write about this in the book that the power of music is very strong in the way in which it um, in which it frames what it is that we're seeing. You write in your book about something called the kinesphere. Um, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that. Uh, it, it, it's a fascinating idea. It reminded me I've, I've never danced, but I've done some martial arts, and it reminded me a little bit about the experience you can have with, uh, pe- you know, the concept of chi is very complicated and, you know, varies across culture and discipline, but but it did it did remind me of some of the experiences I had around sort of heightened moments of awareness, not, not being a, a, a pro or a master myself. It wasn't a constant thing. It just sort of came and went. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting you mentioned martial arts because um, my first memory or contact with the idea of the kinesphere was in a practice called uh, called contact improvisation and contact improvisations sprang out of the United States in the late 1960s and a lot of it was in relation to the practice of Aikido so a lot of the kinds of concepts and practices were uh, um, derived from Aikido and yeah it's a it's a curious thing where you have you have as a uh, it's trying to get at the idea that the way in which we are in the world is bigger than our bodies. When you're really working closely with your body, it's easy to imagine that the limits of your body are the limits of the way in which you are, um, uh, let's say, changing the space, changing the space around you. And, and the kinesphere, especially when you're dancing with someone else, if you're not in contact, there's all sorts of, you might say, charge. It's not, I don't mean in any scientific sense of the word, but like there's a kind of sense of aliveness going on between and around you which is goes or extends beyond the body i mean it sounds a little bit like aura um, and i don't think they uh, the idea the idea of kinesphere is the same but it's when i'm describing it it's a little bit like that yeah thanks for that answer that's it's really interesting um uh when you talk about contact improvisation it reminded me of something in um kung fu called uh sticky hands um where you and your um training partner touch forearms and then you one version of this is you move your forearms in a circular motion and eventually you actually do find yourself able to sense what the other person is, is doing, um, naturally. Um, and, uh, it sounded like, I mean, and and just, you know, when I read about this in your book, the the kinesphere, it's like, Oh man, how much more complicated must it be in a, in a creative endeavor, um, like dance. Um, it's also complicated and also tremendous pleasure. Like it's it's something that's incredibly rich sort of physical sensation experience. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, I think I, I hope I put this in a in a good way, but I think you you write about in your book about the a sort of paradox of having to be ambitious in order to be good, uh, but also remaining open or vulnerable, and that this is just a a sort of complex situation that you can find yourself in. Yeah, I think, uh, I think like any kind of specialization in any, in any endeavor or any discipline, it requires spending a lot of time doing that thing. And of course the the flip side of that is it means you're not doing other things. And when you're talking about creative processes, having access or being exposed to things that are other that are that are surprising to you that are not that make you feel uncomfortable that are that are not in your usual domain seems to be seems to me to be a critical thing so there's a kind of a paradox there which is you know I need to spend time on this but if I spend too much time then I'm effectively operating in a bubble and that bubble is not a very useful place to be so that's and I think again that that would go for any endeavor I don't think that's a particular dance are you working on a performance currently? I'm um, about to head up to Scotland, um, where I'm working with uh, 
two other people, Natalia Barua and Katrina McPherson, and they're both filmmakers and dancers or choreographers. And so the three of us have that shared, those shared practices. And so the project is, um, we don't, excuse me, we don't really know what it is yet, uh, but we're going to start next week and it'll be working with a lot of cameras in the room, a lot of screens, and, and each of us is all of those things. We are uh, both, uh, uh, you might say, directors of photography, dancers and choreographers. So it's, it's kind of a live or hot situation. It's, we don't quite yet know what's going to happen. Well, uh, best of luck. It sounds it sounds exciting to be starting something new like that. Um, it should be great. Yeah. Uh, I guess my... Uh, my second last question is um, 80% of the royalties from your book are going to the Chisholm Hill dance space. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that space and, and the work it does. So Chisholm Hill dance space is a small, um, a small artist led space in, in London and in East London. And, and the thing about artist led spaces these days is that they, they're pretty rare. Um, and Chisholm Hale has served uh, contemporary and experimental dance in, in, in the UK, in London, for a long time now. Um, but it's also a small organisation. It's, uh, it's run on um, uh, the smell of an oily rag. And so I wasn't so much interested in trying to make any money out of this book. I, I have a salary as a, as a researcher in, at, at a university. I, was, uh, I thought well, this seemed to be an opportunity to to try and get a little bit of money to, to, to Chisholm Hale Dance Space. And, and I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud that uh, hopefully they'll get a little bit of cash. It looks like that's going to happen. <laughs> when you say, I'm curious, when you say artist-led as opposed to funded by a council or something like that, is that what you mean? Yeah, no, what I mean is that uh, most uh, kind of a normal organization would have an artistic director who then is, uh, has people underneath her or him and uh, their responsibility is to sort of oversee the uh, oversee the um, uh, the organisation and artists in those spaces don't have have little say in the way in which the structure and the things that are going on are happening in that space. But in an artist-led space or an artist-run space, it's the artists involved who are saying we need to do more of this, we need to do less of this. What about this? You know, so they're they're really driving the um, they're the heart and soul of the way the space operates. Uh, my last question is, um, if there were one thing we could build for you on Lean Pub that you'd like to have, or if there were one thing that we could fix, is there anything you can think of? Well, it's kind of funny because, you know, I was pretty aware when I first thought about using Lean Pub was is that it's, you know, it seemed to be a community where mostly uh, technical books were being written. And, and I appreciated that it was a, effectively a risk to write a book that wasn't about technical things. Um, but one of the one of the funny things about that is when I was trying to find a the, the right kind of, um, how do you say, the sort of the subject, uh, uh, the right kind of area for this book that it was really hard to make any sense of how this book would fit in the different categories that you have for Lean Pub. So that would be my one request, that there was some kind of um, an opening out into other areas, and maybe that would help encourage, or hopefully this book will help encourage people who are not, you know, not just writing the technical manuals. I know that's, I know that's a, it's a, it's a pretty rough summary, but that's, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll go and add dance as a category uh, right after <laughs> this interview. Um, well, too kind, you're too kind. Uh, thank you very much, Simon, for taking some time out of a, a London evening to, to talk to me and to be uh, on this podcast. And thank you for being a Lean Pub author. I was really excited when uh, I saw you appear. Thanks, Lynn. It was a real pleasure. And I really certainly appreciated uh, doing the publishing through Lean Pub, but also just this evening, I really appreciated the, um, the, the questions. They were uh, uh, wonderful and, and quite challenging indeed. So nicely done. Thanks very much.